You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. The serpent is speaking to Eve, not Adam. And then later we'll see how Eve then brings what her deception to Adam, which then has its final effects on God. It is amazing to me, even as I studied this week, to notice that we have a very clever enemy who's very purposeful and he's very intentional in how he, dis- he seeks to not just dissuade us from knowing God, but ultimately he seeks to destroy us. So first, he comes to Eve in disguise. Secondly, he comes to reverse the divinely ordained roles of the family. But thirdly, notice this, Satan purposely ignores the name of God. It's a very subtle thing. Look with me in 1B, verse 1B. We, we witness the second sign of a false teacher that he denies the goodness of God. Notice with me in verse 1B. He said to the woman, did God really say? Now, up to this point in the Bible, God's recorded name has always been Lord God. And now Satan approached Eve with the half-truth, purposely withholding the name of God. Now, now why would Satan want to do this? What's his point? What's his purpose in doing this? Satan knew that in order to get rid of God's rule, he first had to get rid of the authority of God's word. That he had to place a subtle seed in the heart of Eve that will cause her to misconstrue and misunderstand the very character of the God who created her and the God who loved her. I hear someone saying, Pastor James, does one word really matter? I mean, what's really the big difference between God and Lord God? As I said before, prior to this conversation, God is constantly referred to in Scripture as Lord God. And this word Lord God means ruler or absolute authority. Thus, by Satan purposely withholding the name Lord from from God's name, Satan was denying God's sovereign rule and reign as the rightful king over his kingdom. He said, not did the Lord God, he said, did God really say this, Eve? I have the joy of picking up my kids from school um, often throughout the week, and there's a young man, an older guy who I get to um, see often because his son goes to the same school, and uh, he's a Hebrew Israelite, and if you don't know what that is, we can talk about it later. But I know this because he comes up to me, and he always looks at me, and he says, he's the one where he says, what up, king? And I'm like, who are you talking to, man? You, you talk- what up, King? And at first, I was kind of flattered by it. Like, oh, that's kind of, you know, maybe that's a cool nickname, you know? Yeah, that's a cool nickname. He wants to call me King. 
But, you know, upon talking to him and realizing and realizing what he was saying, well, he was not just calling me a king just to call me a king. He was calling me a king in lieu of God being the king. <laughs> and I had to remind him, no, son, I'm not a king. I'm a son. <laughs> I'm a son of the most high God. There's only one king. And we bow our name and we bow our name to him. He is the only one that's worthy of our praise. He's the only one that's a worthy of our worship. He is the only one whom we willfully and joyfully bow the knee to. You know, Satan has ways to, not just to cause you to deny God in outright, maybe rude or outlandish ways, but sometimes he has his ways to, to do it in, in subtle ways, right? I mean, for a minute there, I was kind of flattered. Oh, you're calling me king. Okay, hey, how did, tell me more about why, why am I king? Help me to know that. Love what Isaiah 42, verse 8 says about this. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. That's from the New Living Translation, but I even like the, the Christian Standard Bible version even more. He says this this way, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You know, honestly, a part of worshiping God is not just acknowledging him as God. It's part of worshiping God is also acknowledging who we are in light of who God is. It's acknowledging who we are in light of who God is, right? Is he, if he's perfect and great and glorious, if he's good, if he's all these things, then that glory and that praise should only go to him, amen? Notice what we both proclaim and believe about our God matters greatly. Let me say that again. What we both proclaim and believe about our God matters greatly. And I say it, we say it all the time, but I think it's, it's worth saying even at this moment in time that our view of God determines our pursuit of him. That how we see our God matters. Look with me in verses 2 to 3 to, as we continue to look more specifically at how Satan sought to deny the goodness of our God. In verses 2 and 3 it says, He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from uh, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the, tr the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Notice with me Satan's strategy here. He can't deny God's goodness, so now he takes it upon himself to question his character. And he questions his character by intentionally planting seeds of doubt inside of Eve's mind. Earlier he said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, he's asking Eve to question her own understanding about God. And what the things that are possibly going on in Eve's head is, are these. Did God really say that I can't eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, maybe, maybe the problem isn't with God. Maybe it was with Adam. What did God tell Adam? I wasn't there to hear that conversation. I wasn't a part of that conversation. 
Did, did Adam understand God rightly? Can I really trust Adam to tell me the truth? Subtly, inconspicuously, Satan is planting seeds in the hearts of Eve in order for her to not just distrust God, but even to distrust what she heard from her husband, Adam. And sadly, this lie is as alluring today as it was back then. Did God really say? Did God really say that I have to do these things? Look with me at verse 4 as we see how the audacity of Satan as he has the audacity to correct God himself. Verse 4, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. (laughs) Notice what Satan is doing here. You know, when I was in college, I'm going to take y'all back a little bit. When I was in college, my friends and I used to love love burning CDs. I know you don't know what that is, but we could talk about it later. Simply what we would do is we would take music or a movie and we, we would copy it from one disc to another. Can I get an amen if anybody knows what I'm talking about? All right. Amen. All right. I'm not alone. Thank, thank you, Lord. So, so we, would, we would take music or a movie from one CD to another so that it has precisely what the original disc had on it. And we call that burning. And the end result was that the copy becomes precisely the content of the original. You know, Satan does the same thing when he burns his thoughts into our thinking. He burns his thoughts into our thinking so that we think his thoughts after him. His goal is to get us to do this until those thoughts are burned so deeply into us that they actually become our thoughts. His thinking, which starts as a suggestion, turns into a way of thinking for us which then turns us into and then which turns us into a way of operating the incorrect thinking ends up creating the actions that result from those original thoughts do you hear me this is why we desire as a church to grow into spiritual maturity not just through coming to church on Sunday, but knowing God's word. Psalm 119 says it best. How can a young man keep his way pure? And the psalmist answers his own question by saying, by keeping the word of God. That God's word is powerful. God's word is steady. God's word is faithful. It is true. It is righteous. And it speaks of and reminds us of the beauty, the character, and the faithfulness of our God, even when everything around us tries to dissuade us from acknowledging it. The truth of God's word is that God's word actually keeps you even when you don't want to be kept. Even when you want to say that mean and spiteful thing back to your husband or your wife, even when you want to respond with anger and frustration with your children, even when you want to type that response on Twitter or Facebook back to that person who dishonored you or disgraced you, 
God's word has a way of keeping you even when you do not want to keep yourself from doing things that, dis, that, that, that don't honor God. It's an anchor to our soul. It's a foundation, firm foundation which, which no one can push us from. You see, one of Satan's oldest lies is this, is that God is withholding something good from you. And you can't trust God to be good because he's always holding back from giving you his best. This is the lie that Satan speaks over our lives time and time again. God is withholding. See, you know, this always happens to you. This always happens every single time. It's a good reminder for us this morning that Satan wants to convince you to mistrust the goodness of God so you won't be able to receive any good thing from your good God. I hope you hear me when I say this. Satan wants to convince you to mistrust the goodness of God. He wants you to mistrust the goodness of God so you won't be able to receive any good thing from him as your God and your king. Love how James 1 puts it. He says, if anyone of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives so all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea tossed and driven by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all or his or her ways. As we say often, I'll say it again, our view of God determines our pursuit of him. Look with me to verses four and five to witness the third sign of a false teacher. Not only do they deny the goodness, the greatness of our God, not only do they deny the goodness of our God, thirdly, he denies the generosity of our God. Verses four and five says, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we have to stop here just for a second to remind ourselves that as the epitome of perfection, as the epitome of perfection to become more like God is humanity's highest goal. The Westminster Catechism says it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, this is where Satan misleads Eve. Satan misled Eve concerning the way to accomplish this goal. He told her that she could become more like God by defying God's authority. He told her that she could become more like God by taking God's place. And he told her that she could become more like God by deciding for herself what's best for her life. In effect, Satan is, inviting, he, Satan is inviting Eve to become her own God. 
And this temptation that that he presents to Eve is the same temptation that he presents to us today. Does this sound familiar to you? This invitation to become your own God? To become the own captain of your ship? To become the, the own arbitrary of your life? Does this sound familiar to you? Because Satan at one time was an angel who resided in heaven. But yet he rebelled against God and yet and then he was thrown out of heaven. Listen, it's Isaiah 14. Speaks it this way. It says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the gods of, of the gods assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Shiloh into the darkest regions of the pit. Listen to Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 18. It says it this way. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were an anointed garden cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, garden cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings." Now, these two passages are referring specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, respectively. But they were also written to recognize the power behind those kings, namely Satan himself. Notice that Satan was attempting to get Adam and Eve to fall in the same way that he had already fallen. Let me say that again. Satan was attempting to get Adam and Eve to fall in the same way that he had already fallen. I think this is a good place for us to share a warning for us today. Don't believe someone's claim of truth when it's already been proven untrue. Don't believe someone's claim of truth when it's already been proven untrue. In other words, don't be a vigilante for someone. (laughs) Don't be a vigilante. Or better yet, don't allow someone to convince you to fight their battles for them. There are some people in our lives who are mad, upset, and frustrated at different people, and they just want you to get on the bandwagon with them. (laughs) They just want you to hate them just because they hate them. Listen, this is not of God. It's not of our God and our king. This is the work of the enemy. You know, as a young kid, I used to be known as being the enforcer of my my kid group. We grew up with about five or six different of us in Detroit, Michigan, and I was always uh, the tough guy, if you will. 
So if anybody got into trouble, they would call James to come in and, and, and uh, protect them, if you will. After a while, I realized that I was fighting more. I was getting to more scuffles and fights than I, I knew what to do with. And soon after, after a while, I realized that the reason I was getting in these fights was not just because I wanted to fight. I was getting in these fights because my best friend at the time, he had a big mouth, right? And he would cause a lot of trouble with other guys. And then he'd say, James, come take care of it. <laughs> and I would come running and get in a fight or scuffle with these guys or whatever. I was being a vigilante, right? I was just following after my friend's lead, having more fights, having more quarrels than I knew what to do with because I was just following the lead of someone else who was purposely edging me on in this way. So how does God, how does Satan cause distrust towards God? Look with me in verses six through eight here. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of his fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice here that Satan tried to make Eve think that sin is good, pleasant, and desirable. And notice her response. She looked, she took, she ate, and then she gave. She first looked and she saw that the tree was good. Now, remember the seed that had been planted in her mind that maybe I didn't clearly understand God's instruction. Maybe Adam didn't really understand what God had said. So in her own mind, she looked and saw for herself that, guess what? This tree doesn't look too bad. So then she not only looked and saw that it was good, then she saw that it was delightful to look at. That the tree, the thing that God had told her not to do or not to participate within, it had a beauty to it. It had an allurement, right? It it had a pizzazz to it. Not only did she see it was delightful, but then she saw it was desirable. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So then... After she saw that it was good, after she saw that it was delightful, after she saw that it was desirable, she then went and took of it, ate it, and then shared it. One thing about sin and destruction is that sin and destruction doesn't want to live on its own. It always wants to be like a cancerous cell and spread and affect any and everything that it can around it. Sin is never an isolated event. It's a good reminder for us this morning that temptation often begins by simply seeing something you want and not looking away. Temptation often begins by simply seeing something that you want and not looking away. What Paul calls us to in the scriptures when we're dealing with temptation is not necessarily to fight it, but to flee from it, to run from temptation, to to run from it, to, to see 
that it may be good, to see that it may be delightful, to see that it may be even desirable for you, but learning how to run away, flee, turn from temptation is what God desires for us. I love how James 4, 7 says it. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot of times we just want to look at the second half of this verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's a prerequisite to the devil fleeing from you. The devil won't flee from you because he doesn't fear you. The devil flees from you because you are submitted to God. He says, therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. Submit to God and then resist the devil and then he will flee from you. Notice also with me, not just how Satan tempts Eve, but notice also when he does it. Satan tempts Eve while she was alone, isolated and secluded from anyone else. We said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating. Remember the old African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Remember the wisdom we, we gleaned from Proverbs 18, 1 and 2? It says, the one who isolates himself pursues selfish desire. He, rebel, he rebels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his opinions. It's a good reminder for us to don't allow yourself to experience temptation alone. Don't allow yourself to experience temptation alone. Proverbs 15.22 puts it this way. He says, plans fail when there is no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. They succeed. In other words, be careful of the one who spends countless hours in isolation and then emerge as if they have every answer for every situation apart from the wise counsel of others. We need one another to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. What about you? Let me ask you. Are you purposely living in isolation? Are you secluding yourself and experiencing these temptations that you can, can't resist or can't fight alone? Are you experiencing God's grace in the midst of, com- of God's community or apart from it? If that is you today, I invite you to consider making this your church home. I invite you to be a part of a community that cares about your well-being and wants to provide men and women who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, learning how to submit to Jesus and the authority of his word, not just collectively, but even individually. I invite you to be a part of something bigger than yourself, to submit to God the King through the beauty and the provision of his church. The church is not just one dot or one club that's a part of your resume. The church is a blood-brought people 
being redeemed by the very precious blood of God, her king. It's the people who have been called out of the world to live as holy ones, as beloved sons and daughters of the most high God, to perform and proclaim the excellencies of God's word, to exhibit and embody the beauty of what it means to be surrendered to God as her king. That's what the church is about. It's not just something you do on a Sunday. Church is about who you're becoming. Through the blood of Christ. So let's deal with the elephant in the room. Where was God during this conversation? Why didn't God stop this? Well, do you recall Genesis 2, 16 through 17? Do you remember what God said to Adam? He said these words, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free from, to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree, of the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. See, when God provided for Adam, God gave Adam both freedoms and limits with this commandment. You are free to eat from any tree, Adam, any tree you can eat eat of, but just not this one. All these trees, thousands of trees, Adam, you can enjoy. You can have multiple servings, Adam. You can enjoy anything your heart desires except for this one right here. Listen, for our parents, I think that's good parenting advice. It's really good parenting advice to talk to our kids, not just about the things that they should abstain from, but to allow them to see the goodness of God's creation to realize, man, God has given you all of this to participate in. He's given you all this beauty, all this goodness, but there are some things that you have to be leery of. That's really good parenting. I, don't, I didn't get that from any book. I got that from the Bible. Because that's how God is parenting and leading his children, Adam and Eve, in the garden. You see, we can view life either as a black sheet or a white sheet, right? A black sheet looks like this. It's all, everything is wrong around the world except this one little thing. This one little dot is a good thing that we can look at. Everything is horrible. Everything is wrong. You, it, it's, it's a field with the world of no's and don'ts. But this one thing, you can do this one thing. Or we can look at it as a white sheet, right? We can look at it as a white sheet. We can see the goodness and the beauty. We can see the glory of God. Help our children to see that even though this world is not how God created it to be, even this world is broken and is lost, that God is still redeeming and he has redeeming and is redeeming the world. That his goodness is not restrained from by our sin. We'll talk about that at the very end in a couple of minutes. That we can talk about all the goodness that God has provided and talk about the things that he gives us to protect us. You know, sometimes we have the illusion that freedom is doing anything that we want. But God says that true freedom comes from obedience and knowing what not to do. Knowing what not to do. The restrictions that God gives us are for our good, helping us to avoid evil. And God wanted Adam to obey, but God gave Adam the choice to choose. 
And without choice, Adam would have been like a prisoner and his obedience would have been hollow, it would have been shallow, and it would have been devoid of love. Biblical freedom is the ability to love God through our obedience. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, obey me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Matthew 7, 21. So where's the hope of the gospel in all of this? Look with me in verse 9. It's a simple sentence, and we'll unpack it a little bit more next week. But it simply says this. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? This question is one that echoes down the corridors of time and into the heart of humanity. This is not a question of ignorance. This is a question of reflection. It's not a question of location. It's a question of proximity. It's not a question of Adam's destination, but it is a question of Adam's distance from God. And the answer is obvious and it is clear that God, I am not where you left me. God, I am living in sin. And this is the prerequisite to salvation. This is the prerequisite for us being saved is that we first have to admit that we have made an egregious attack upon God. And listen to me, as we talk about this aspect of Missio Day, the Bible isn't about us. The Bible is about God and him as, as our God and king, having those whom he loved turn his, their backs on him. It's the story of us turning our back on God, but yet God still pursuing us in love and in faithfulness and in intentionality and care. And this is the question that he begins. He doesn't say, what have you done? He doesn't say, why did you do it? He doesn't even say, Adam, what are you going to do about what you've done? The first question and the most important thing to God is relationship. Is relationship. It's not about Adam and Eve getting a, a, a mop and cleaning up their mess. It's not about them explaining themselves. The most important thing to God when humanity has turned his, our backs upon him is relationship with him. That's what's most important to him. And hopefully that word itself gives you freedom to know that the most important thing that God cares about me is how am I relating to him as God, my father. Not about what I'm doing for him, not about how I'm serving him, not about how much I'm giving in money. It's how are you relating to me? Where are you? Where are you? Are you still with me? Are you still loving me? Are you still following me? Are you still submitting to me? Are you still trusting me? Are you still looking to me for, as your provision and your hope? Where are you? There are two lies that Satan provides. One, that sin carries no consequences. You will not die. And the second one is that as human beings, we can become equals with, to God. And we're going to perform a meal right now, a communion meal that speaks otherwise. 
This meal reminds us that there was a cost for our sins and our transgressions. This meal reminds us that someone had to pay for the penalties of human sin for the salvation that only God could provide. This meal also provides for us and reminds us of the goodness of our God, that those who are about the reality of Jesus submitting to him as Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake of this meal even now. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and blessed it and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let's eat that bread together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Same way, he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He went on to say that, I'm going to drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.